Section 1 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 1, October 1895. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Gallagher. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 1, October 1895. Section 1. In Gold Time by Roberta Littlehale He was straight and grizzled and keen of eye. He had worked and fought and gambled his way through the lawlessness and passion of the state's early life into the decency and uprightness of a successful contractor. His name was Bill Bowen. As a civil engineer, I came more or less in contact with him and rejoiced in the largeness of his mental mold as well as in the business sense of security he let me enjoy. One summer's night we took a drive to a distant town on the San Joaquin River. We were to look at stone for bridge building, and the blistering heat of the day made us willing to lose our sleep for the more comfortable traveling by starlight. The horses jogged lazily through the coarse, thick dust on the river's levee, and the insects from the grain fields and the frogs from the sloughs had things wholly to themselves until Bill suddenly interrupted. Mrs. Chase is pretty enough yet to understand why she sent two fellows to the devil, isn't she? What are you talking about? I answered. Oh, said Bill, pulling himself up. I forgot. You didn't struggle with the rest of us through those groggy days. I knew Bill well enough to let him relapse just so many minutes. Then I said, Judge Chase's wife is lovelier at sixty than most girls at sixteen, but I hadn't an idea she figured so romantically in the early days as to send anybody overboard. Hm, replied Bill reflectively. The horses traveled on without attention, and I waited in patience. You know what it was like, he began at last. Men with guns from all over the Union, and gold the heaven we sweated for. Prayers, and a court, and the gambling tables all running under one roof, and nary a woman's face showing up in the mass to give us courage. To be sure, there were vexinish ribs of Satan who robbed and killed and drank with the worst of us. But until fifty-one, we'd never the woman for reverence. Then, by degrees, the lawyers and a stray merchant or two aired their families. But things wasn't dizzy till pretty Grace Blanchard got out with her father. Understand she cared herself as she ought to, but, understand, there was men among us who was born and bred to live with blood. The mass of us had to take out our satisfaction in looking at her. But for two, the favor in old Blanchard's eyes was easy reading, and it wasn't long seeing the course the straw took. Ned Emery was a long, lean, blonde fellow with a blamed fine face and a way that made friends of the toughest. They said he looked a swell when he called to the Blanchards, but I never saw him but like the rest of us, red-shirted and overalled, and an angle to his pistols that made him a joy. George Stokes, Shorty, we called him, was a man with an answer that ripped like a knife and a head that made success of everything, because it could work crooked as well as straight. He'd been on the bench, but he'd located a vein in Mariposa and was overseen up there in 52. Naturally, he lost opportunities not being right on the spot, and the danger began. The Blanchard house was swelled larger than most of the cabins and had two long windows that opened onto a porch. Things might never have been so bad but for those two lidless eyes in front. One fatal night, Shorty Strokes rode into the settlement, and I'm getting ahead of affairs. 
Bill tossed his cigar into the Tuleys and hurried the horses into effort as the interest of his reminiscence swept him on. The girl carried herself out of the fashion of high steppers, and neither fellow could swear where he stood. It was laughter and spirit for both of them, they said, and nip and tuck for the yielding. The pace was the sort that exhausts men, and Shorty's brain for lawyer and cooked up a scheme for his rescue. He was for their going together some night before her, and after a formal marriage proposal, each argue his claims and fitness for ten minutes by the clock, their honor at stake to stand by her decision. It got about afterwards that Emery wouldn't consent till he saw the devil to pay in Shorty's earnestness, and they swore with their fists in each other's to carry the thing through to the finish. The date and hour were arranged for the following Sunday night at eight, and they drank to it with gall in the cup. When the evening came, the clock had already struck eight when Stokes reached the Blanchard house. The lights from the room fell over the porch, and from the shadow of the steps he saw the something that in all the world he couldn't bear to see, Emery crossing the room to take Grace Blanchard in his arms. Emery, with passion, paling his face and Grace Blanchard in the beauty of a disturbing humility. He cursed as he watched them cling to each other, and he cursed his way back to the saloons and his Mariposa mining. The next day he turned up again in the settlement, with liquor enough aboard to put a wheel in his head, and, after a losing fling at the tables, he started to find Emery. After a little ineffectual riding, he leaped from the back of his vicious-eyed piebald at the corner that bulged thickest with saloons, and stood close to the stirrup with his hand on his hip. Someone who noticed him said his face had the steely intensity of a razor edge. Then, out of the crowd, unconscious, with the music of love in his heart, swung Ned Emery. His hat was pushed back on his fair head, and he was whistling the overflow out of his veins. In one instant, a bullet rang through the air, followed by another. Emery fell in his own blood, and a horseman was riding off wildly and safe through the shower of bullets that rained around him. Every man with a cayuse tore in pursuit, but they only brought back eight half-dead horses. Stokes had staked relay beasts at different points along the road, and was then safe in the chaparral canyons towards the north. The gambling dens choked up with the crowds. Gold dust was heaped on gold dust for the reward of the cowardly hound. Murders weren't rare then, but there was only one Ned Emery, remember. Four of us wouldn't drop the search. We let the blood money men get out of the way, and then we worked as we'd toil for only our own. There was scarcely no scent to follow, for Stokes had bribed the greasers who furnished his horses, but we forced our way along on nothing. Day and night we rode with our eyes open, sometimes bullying and sometimes begging. It began to seem hopeless. The days were running into summer again. One afternoon, toward twilight, we rested on the crest of a mountain, where the path took a sudden turn away from a two-hundred-foot precipice. We were torn with the snapping branches of the greasewood, and full of extremist dirt and disgust. Suddenly we heard the rustle of a step on the fallen leaves. Under a live oak, not thirty yards away, on the very edge of the cliff, stood Shorty Stokes. He had not heard us, and he stood looking at the moon, which hung a sickle in the hot sky. The evening star was showing. The four of us were like stones. He could have got to Guinea before motion had come to us. Then, simultaneously with our steps forward, he turned and looked into our faces. It was a moment to test the nerve of any man. He stood it as we were used to see him face all things. I suppose I'm the man you're after, he said. He said it with the dignity of a parson. 
In a second, he had thrown down his pistols. He unsheathed his knives and dropped them to the ground. Take me, he said. Four of us looked into the unflinching clearness in his eyes. As we hesitated, he spoke again. Listen, it is not an excuse that I speak, nor in weakening. It is to tell you that those among you who are men will follow my steps under like circumstances. Emery gave us his hands and his oath, in the manner of his frankness, to stand by an arranged agreement. We were to meet at eight o'clock on that Sunday night. A beautifully good woman was to decide on our argument which man she would marry. In writing to meet my engagement, I happened on an accident. Within a half mile of the settlement, close on to time, my piebald went back on his haunches, and the groan of a man came up from the roadside. I found an overloaded miner hurt in the leg, and the hope in my own heart aroused my sympathy. I mounted the man on my beast and headed him back toward camp. Walk as I never walked, I reached the meeting place three minutes late. Ah, God, out of the darkness, I saw Emery take advantage of the delay. None of you is so much occurs to let the life run in a man who, under his honor, couldn't yield a rival three minutes' grace. But with the camp against me and Emery the friend of the sorriest, I couldn't face the music when the justice was done. It is not mercy, I ask. It is life hereafter. Come. With a common impulse, we started forward, only to halt in a frozen horror as Stokes Bronco threw up his head in alarm to watch us with the backward somersaulting of his master's body over the precipice. Though there was but one verdict, even Chase said as we rode down over the mountain that night, Emery might have given Shorty a few minutes' grace. End of section 1